Everyone knows divorce can be messy at the best of times, but today we are talking about the worst of times. Hello and welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. Come hang out with me while I talk true crime. Welcome back, true crime listeners. The case today, it has started many conversations around the world. And once we get into the case, I'm going to tell you why. So let's get into it. 21-year-old Daniel Broderick III. He meets a woman named Betty in a bar in 1965. Daniel, he was studying at a university in Notre Dame in Indiana, and was he was going to become a doctor. He And he does become a doctor. Uh, in fact, when this woman in the bar caught his eye, he walked over to her, asked if he could borrow her napkin. Then he wrote his, his name on it. And he also wrote an abbreviation. And that abbreviation was MDA. When the woman asks what it meant, like what does MDA mean, he told her it stood for medical doctor almost. And for some reason, this cheesy line, it worked. The woman Daniel was talking to was his future wife, and he was sure of it in that exact moment. This was love at first sight. This woman he was talking to is 18-year-old Betty. Betty, she had been living in New York, attending college in the Bronx, and was soon the proud owner of a degree in early childhood education, and also graduated with a minor in English. And Betty, she fell for Daniel that night. Betty, she was visiting Daniel's university uh, for a sporting game. She didn't live there. She didn't go to that university. And that's when this serendipitous meeting took place. Betty, she had to return back to New York. But this didn't mean the end for the two young lovebirds. The two were reunited a little while later when Daniel enrolled in Cornell Medical University in New York. So now the two... They were living in the same city. It sounds like a nice, beautiful love story because the two are so young and successful and in love and they both have drive. And then they get married a few years later in 1969. This is sounding like a storybook, just a beautiful romance. Like a lot of young newlyweds, married life had its financial problems, as you can imagine. Daniel, he's a student, he's studying, students don't make <laughs> any money, you know, maybe a little. Yeah, so he was still studying to become a doctor, which meant, again, he wasn't making any money yet, because um, he was still a student. When I heard this next part in a documentary I watched on this case, I couldn't believe what I was hearing, because it seemed completely outrageous like it would never be allowed today but I guess this was the 60s it was a different time uh, and in today's universities I can almost guarantee this would never happen so listen to this after the two marry Betty moves into Daniel's dorm room at Cornell <laughs> I lived in a dorm when I was studying and it was an apartment situation and in each apartment was five bedrooms and each person living in the apartment got their own bedroom and I couldn't imagine having one of my housemates being like oh hey 
I'm married now and this is my partner and they live here full time. (laughs) That, That would not go over well. You weren't even really allowed visitors at the dorm rooms I lived in. It gets even crazier though. Uh, it's, yeah, this whole situation, I was watching it and I was like, I can't, and it just kept getting wilder and wilder. In 1970, which is just over a year after they get married, Betty gives birth to their firstborn child, a little beautiful girl. So what did the two do? Do they move out of the dorm and into a home? Nope. (laughs) And, you know, I got, I just, I love their determination for what they're doing. Like they're doing the damn thing. They're like, let's have this family let's you know get me through my studies and once I graduate and I'm fully qualified I can be a doctor I can make this money we'll have our family started times are a bit rough right now but they were doing it and I found this so amazing that they were doing this and yeah just I I, it, it just totally fascinated me so they keep on living in this dorm with a baby the baby obviously has no crib or baby's room and they make a little bed for the baby in a drawer in the dorm room. Again, so cute. So now Daniel's dorm room, it's a full-on family home. <laughs> it's just, it's wild to think about, but they did it. They did it. They love this baby. They love that their family was growing. They loved each other. Not everything was all roses though. I mean, it's going to be pretty tough having a newborn baby let alone living in a dorm room I mean it definitely would have had its trials and tribulations but it it was you know the the core of everything seemed to be love because Daniel he's still studying this means the entire time while Betty was pregnant she was working um because her and Daniel they needed money obviously to live and eat and buy stuff for their baby babies need diapers and bottles and so much stuff and he wasn't working and making any money so Betty she was doing this it was Betty supporting their new family this wasn't exactly what Betty thought her married life would be like but she thought if she covered the bills now then when Daniel when he graduates he could get a good job he would be a doctor And then she could fall into the role she imagined, which was mother and housewife. That's what they had arranged their marriage would look like in the beginning. But this was not the case as of present moment. I could imagine Betty was counting the days until Daniel graduated. I can imagine a calendar on the wall and she's Xing off days with a red marker. And she's like, yes, okay, he's going to graduate soon. Life is going to get better. We'll be out of this dorm give my baby a crib and a room um I don't know if she did that that's just what I imagine in my head um and she was probably really excited for him to start supporting the family and just focus on keeping a house tidy and loving her family and just you know doing things that housewives do that's what she wanted and then Daniel he's like oh by the way after I graduate and I'm a medical doctor, I'm actually thinking about going to law school. I want to be a lawyer, which is going to mean a lot more university. And that's right. He's, he's going for a double degree. That's ambitious. That is, that's amazing. And Betty, 
you could imagine she's exhausted by this point. She's bringing in the money, she's caring for the baby, and she's living in a university dorm room. And now she has this realization it's not almost over at all because Daniel, he thinks he would have a better career as a malpractice lawyer. And I thought about this when I was learning all of this. I was thinking about this and I was like, he's probably not wrong. Medical doctors, they do have this prestigious title and it is an admirable profession, but it's not easy. Uh, They work long hours. They can be on call. It's stressful as hell. They have a lot to answer for. And from what I understand, it doesn't make for a good family slash life balance, like family, like work. (laughs) What am I trying to say here? It doesn't make for a good work-life balance. That's it. That's what I'm trying to say. Because doctors are working so incredibly much, like a lot. Oh, I'm, um, I'm, am I okay today? I don't know. <laughs> okay. So yes, you understand what I'm saying probably. So personally, I thought this to be a smart move. And as much as it delayed Daniel from bringing in a paycheck, Betty, she also supported Daniel in this. She was like, yeah, become a doctor lawyer. Okay, great. I, yeah, let's do this, which I just love. They just were supporting each other. They were getting through these hard times. It, it's, it's just such a beautiful love story. And Daniel and Betty and their baby girl, they all moved to Boston after Daniel graduates from Cornell because Daniel, he's now attending Harvard Law School to get his law degree. By all means, Daniel, he is no dummy. He is, he's getting the best of the best over there. And he, he was just at Cornell Medical School and now he's at Harvard Law School. That's amazing. Betty, she becomes pregnant again while in Boston. Daniel is studying and he's still not making any money and they have a baby to care for. Betty, she is the one responsible for caring for the baby, being pregnant and making money all at the same time. That is no easy task. To me, that sounds just about impossible. I couldn't even imagine doing that. Um, And she does it. She does it. These two are just defying logic they are just doing all these crazy hard things and they're succeeding i just think they are it's it's wild like imagine living this life it just yeah it's, it's blowing my mind she's carrying a baby in her room she's carrying a child in her arms and she gets a job babysitting for other families so she can do all her things at the same time it's clever very smart now That is what I would call multitasking. She could just have one baby in her body, one hanging off of her side, and then people's kids she's taking care of all pulling at her, and she's doing it. She's doing it. She's bringing in the paychecks. Betty, to me, she seems to be very industrious. Okay, this is what I'm getting from Betty. She's carrying her entire family financially because she knows it will be worth it when Daniel graduates and is qualified as a malpractice lawyer. And he does. He becomes a doctor lawyer, lawyer doctor, which is amazing. For one person to even become one of those things is is such a celebration. He does both. In 1973, Daniel gains his Harvard law degree and Betty knows that the last four years of struggling to keep her family afloat It has paid off and she can soon focus on what she's always wanted, which is her home and her children. 
Daniel, he gets a job in San Diego at what seems to be a high-end law firm. Okay, so he snags this really good job. I, I mean, look at his resume. I feel like I just stumbled over my words there. Uh, uh, uh. Look at his resume. Harvard Law Degree. Cornell medical doctor. I don't even know what it would say. That's how unqualified in this situation I am. But he would have a very, very impressive resume um, that would reflect on his drive, on his work ethic. And I could imagine with his education, he was snapped up quickly. He's got this amazing resume. He's got this amazing education. Boom, he gets snapped up. So the family now moves to San Diego where Daniel can now succeed at what he's good at. Seems like he's just good at succeeding. He can succeed at succeeding. He can succeed at success, Daniel. (laughs) Uh, This seems like a very hardworking American dream story. But unfortunately, it doesn't end here. Daniel's working a lot. And when he's not working, he is at work having drinks and networking, which I'm sure is part of the job. He's new to the scene. He has to establish a reputation. And he was. Co-workers knew him to be a very courteous, hardworking, smart gentleman. That is a great way to be talked about. Even if you're saying, oh, that man is such a gentleman. I think that is like the highest order of compliment. If I were a man and somebody was like calling me a gentleman or referring to me as a gentleman for like actions or whatever I, I had done... I would take that as the highest compliment. I, yeah, I think if you're a man, you should strive to be a gentleman. I'm not a man, so maybe what I think is wrong, but I don't know. So he was very good at his job, but all of his effort he's putting into his work meant time was being taken out of his family life. He he can't be two places at once. Daniel, he was coming home later and later, and this was happening more frequently, Betty isn't really thrilled about this. She is left alone with the now two children all day and all night. Daniel isn't being the family man Betty was expecting him to be. Although he is holding up his his professional end of the whole deal. So, I mean, it's, it's a hard situation, really. It, to me, it sounded like Betty really wanted that perfect Norman Rockwell family. I think she wanted the hardworking husband who would come home after a long day, set his briefcase down, hug the children, sit down to a perfectly cooked dinner with his wife and kids, and everyone talks and laughs about their day over a roasted chicken. Sounds lovely, right? The reality wasn't quite that. Betty and Daniel, they're both born in the mid to late 40s, so you can't really blame her for having this image in her head if, if this is what she was imagining. Because that was the image of what an American family looked like in the 50s and 60s. And I find looking at old commercials and advertising from the 50s and 60s interesting because it's usually really wholesome imagery. It will be like a homemaker with her perfect dress, hair styled, makeup done, fully cooked breakfast every morning, kids packed lunches waiting on the table, roast dinner in the evening. You know what I'm talking about. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie Pleasantville, but this is what keeps flashing in my mind is like images from Pleasantville. What I'm getting at though is it's an impossible standard. And it makes me laugh, but it also makes me sad that people 
were trying to reach this standard and thinking this was normal. And if everything wasn't perfect, then you were failing at the American dream, at your perfect American family. It was an impossible standard. It was just so impossible. So I'm not exactly sure. And this made me think of something, actually. I'm not exactly sure when Valium became Valium. (laughs) Did I say Valium the first time? Okay, anyways, I'm not exactly sure when Valium became so popular for housewives in America, but I can sure see why. They're grasping and struggling to fulfill this ideology that society has placed upon them. And when you can't achieve those things you're trying to achieve and it's getting harder and harder and you're struggling and struggling, but you're not seeing the results you want – it can be it can be really hard to deal with. So that made me think of Valium. So I started writing this. And I thought, I'm I'm gonna I just had a sidetrack. Like I don't know if I can't like stay on task naturally, but I had a sidetrack thinking like, oh shit, maybe this is why Valium was so popular. Okay, so anyways, I'm I'm trailing off. But I looked into this and Valium came out around 1963 or 64. And by 1966, a popular song called Mother's Little Helper came out. And it was about housewives and mothers consuming Valium. And I was looking up ads for like Valium in the 1960s. And it was, it was fucking crazy how much it was targeted towards housewives. Uh, this is, it's actually a very interesting topic and I did find an interesting article to read which I have linked in my show notes I'm thinking I might cover the history of Valium sometime so I won't get into it now because it just seemed the more I looked into it the more it just kind of started to snowball into like more and more and more and I was like whoa okay anyways back to Betty back to Betty and Daniel though sorry Betty she was struggling. She was struggling with Daniel working so much and staying late to drink or network, whatever he was doing. But his hard work, it was paying off. And eventually they had two more kids and he bought his family a bigger home in a nicer neighborhood. When I say nicer neighborhood, I'm pretty sure this was a very nice neighborhood. I don't mean like, oh, it was a nicer neighborhood. It seemed like one of the best neighborhoods. It seemed affluent. And Betty, she's into this. She could now live out her perfect housewife dream. And she did. She was very well presented. She was a great mother and homemaker. She even dyes her hair a Barbie blonde. She's getting the look down. She's loving taking the kids to their sporting events and socializing with other sports moms. And everything is going to plan, except her marriage. It was said that Betty told people that Daniel would call her names like lazy, fat, and stupid. I think old and boring were also thrown in the mix from time to time as well, which is definitely not okay. That's um, really sad. So Daniel, he's making lots of money, but he's working more than ever. I could imagine he's stressed to the maximum. Uh, He doesn't have time for his family. He's just working and working and working. This is where the dream cannot be a reality. This is where you can't have it all. If Daniel is working nonstop to build this lavish life, then how is it possible he can be at two places at once? You just can't do it. 
and he he can't be with his family and make in bank at the same time. I'm not sure what his work to life ratio was, but it sounds like he was always at the office. And when he was home, it wasn't good because he and Betty were fighting a lot, which in turn is going to make him not want to be home if he doesn't have to. Nobody wants to go home and think, oh man, I'm going to walk in that door. There's going to be an argument. Nobody wants that. And if that's the case, you're going to find excuses to not walk in that door. If you do have it later and later in the evening when maybe you think everybody's sleeping. So if that's what was happening, you know, that could be what was happening. This brings us to 1982. Betty and Daniel, they've been married for about 12 or 13 years now. They have four kids together, a beautiful home, but a rocky relationship. Daniel, he's now 38 years old. He has this amazing career that he's really good at as a malpractice lawyer. And he hires a personal assistant. He's got a, he's got a ton going on in his life. A personal assistant, it makes sense. Um... Yeah, but he hires a young 22-year-old gorgeous woman named Linda Kolenka. Linda, she already worked in the office, but as a receptionist for the entirety of the business, I believe. And Daniel is like, hey, Linda, why don't you just come work for me as my personal assistant? I got a lot going on. I could use the help. And Linda's like, yeah, all right, sign me up, hire me. From what I heard... Linda looks a lot like Betty, but 12 years younger. In the documentary I watched, oh, don't hold me on this. I can't remember who exactly said it. I believe it was an investigator um, in this case was like, oh yeah, if you saw a picture of Linda, you could see the resemblance between her and Betty. Like it was, it really looked like a young Betty. So Betty hears this news. And she is not pleased with her husband's choice. Betty knows how attractive Linda is and how much time Daniel will be spending with Linda at the office. And immediately, Betty is suspicious. She's not into this idea. But was Betty being suspicious for no reason? Was she being insecure? Well, let's find out. So Betty decides to ask Daniel if he is sleeping with his assistant and he denies it. Not only denies it, but he calls her crazy and delusional. There had been rumors floating around that people had seen Daniel and Linda walking around holding hands. Um, those are rumors. We don't ever know if those true. If those are true, maybe, maybe not. Anyways, Betty hears about this. She asked Daniel, "What's going on? I'm hearing you guys are holding hands or whatever." She confronted him with, and Daniel, he's denying any kind of relationship with Linda calling her crazy calling her delusional and betty's like okay okay if you say so you say so so daniel's birthday rolls around november 22nd this is now 1983 daniel was turning 39 years old on this day and betty thinks oh i know i'll surprise him at his office and i'll take him out for our birthday lunch she packs a bottle of champagne and red roses wouldn't that be fun fun it was not Betty goes to the office and is like, hey, where's my husband? I've looked in his office, but it's empty. And it looks like he's been sharing a bottle of wine with someone because there's two glasses. And one of those glasses has lipstick on it. There's also some cake and birthday decorations hanging around, but no Daniel. 
the people in the office tell her, um, well, he left with his assistant. His assistant, Linda. Something tells me Linda may have put up those decorations, bought that cake and drank that wine. And something also told Betty this as well. It was pretty easy to, I guess, piece that one together. Betty, she takes a seat and she waits and she waits and she waits. But Daniel, he does not come back to work. And the furious Betty, she goes home. And what she does next is pretty dramatic, I want to say. I've never been in this situation, so I don't know. But she goes home and she lights Daniel's clothes on fire. Yeah, that's right. She gets home, she puts all his clothes in the backyard, and she lights them on fire. Um, I, it's shocking i've never heard this happen in real life before you hear it in songs or you see it on movies but i didn't think people actually did this but betty she did do this and yeah this was quite shocking to me so daniel comes home and he's like what the fuck and betty is like yeah what the fuck I could imagine there was a lot of words being um, thrown around that evening. Somehow this situation, it didn't immediately separate the two. But by February of 1985, Betty and Daniel, they did separate. Betty was caring for all four of the children and she has an idea. Betty thinks, well, looking after kids is hard and I don't think Daniel appreciates all I do so I'm going to give him the kids to look after and see how he goes as a single parent for a few weeks so this is kind of speculated that this is is why she did this this is why people believe this is why she did this Betty she loves her kids she wouldn't just try to get rid of them that was you know the last thing she wanted so it's speculated that she was just giving Daniel the kids for a few weeks to be like, hey, maybe you should appreciate me because I do a lot. And she drops the kids off at Daniel's. And in a lot of documentaries I watched and interviews I watched, they made it a point to say one by one. So I'm not really sure what they meant by that, but I think she dropped one of the daughters off. And then a few days later, one of her sons was dropped off. And then the other two kids joined um, and when she dropped the first daughter off, Daniel wasn't there. So her daughter had to wait outside. And this was talked about a lot uh, during this case. Um, but if this was Betty's plan, it, it didn't work. It didn't go as as planned. Daniel, he has money. He can hire a nanny. He can hire a babysitter. He can hire a maid. He can hire someone to look after his kids and clean his house, whatever else he wanted. He has money. When you have money, things can be easier. I know a lot of things can be harder, but also you can pay people to kind of make your life a little bit easier, like childcare and um, house cleaning, stuff like that, laundry service, things that people like myself could never, ever afford. So Betty... She saw this plan not working and eventually she wanted her kids back. She loves her kids. She was a great mother. But Daniel, he was now given custody. I will say that I watched an interview from 1992 that Oprah Winfrey did 
with two of the Broderick children and they said that it was the court's decision to give Daniel custody and Betty, she was allowed visitation. So it's not like she never saw them. And I wanted to add this in because it really, like everything I was watching, everything that I was hearing, it really makes it look like Daniel held the children away from Betty but that may be exaggerated uh there was speculation that Daniel got custody because he had maybe some control of the courts given his professional position but Betty's daughter said that's not the case at all he got custody because Betty was acting she says crazy, but I'm going to say irrational and her actions were less than desirable. That's how I'll describe that, which did reflect on Betty badly when it came time for the courts to make it a custody decision. September 23rd, 1985, Betty is out having lunch with her friends. So imagine a pretty pristine lunch okay this is a ve- this is very important to Betty for these these social outings and lunches and brunches and whatever so I'm sure this was a very classy ladies lunch they're sitting around possibly having some champagne and oysters I don't know I didn't read their menu um that what they were eating that's just what I'm imagining in my head um and then a man walks up to the table and he asks for Betty And Betty responds, yeah, I'm Betty. And the man hands her an envelope. And she opens this envelope. And in front of all her friends, she's just been handed divorce papers. This would have been incredibly embarrassing to Betty. This would have left her face red. This is the beginning of the end for Betty and Daniel in more ways than one. Remember, Daniel, he's not only a lawyer, but he's also a doctor. He used both his skills to his advantage, let's say, when he's working his cases, okay? The people he's going after. He has quite a few advantages with his education. He knows the law. He knows about psychology. He knows exactly how to break someone down mentally, spiritually, and financially. Okay, he knows this. He's a successful malpractice lawyer. You don't become a successful lawyer by kind like not knowing these things, I could imagine. It seems like it's part of the job. It takes money for a divorce. And Daniel, he knows Betty doesn't have an endless supply of money. So he starts wasting Betty's time and money. He would do things like call them to court uh and so either like make like a court meeting or something and Betty's lawyer he came from pretty far away so he had to drive there the lawyer would show up and then the meeting in court would be postponed and that means that Betty is having to pay her lawyer every time this happens and nothing is getting accomplished except to pleading Betty's bank account because she has to pay for this lawyer to drive there which was a couple hours I believe and also to drive home so she's paying up to six hours for this lawyer and for nothing basically she's just paying this lawyer to drive to the courthouse and drive back like nothing is getting accomplished which 
I mean, do lawyers do that? Because it's actually kind of fucking smart. It's terrible. It's really terrible. But I think maybe being a lawyer has a lot of terrible things to do when you're trying to win. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. So was Daniel using his expertise to gain every advantage? Probably. Daniel, he knows the law. He knows the courts. He knows everyone working this system. And he has a huge budget. He's making over a million dollars a year. He had resources Betty would never be able to have. To add insult to injury, Daniel thinks it's a good idea to tell Betty he um, he was having an affair with Linda and that he loved Linda. <laughs> Meaning Betty had not been crazy like Daniel had previously tried to convince her of being when she asked that. She was not paranoid. Uh, she was absolutely correct with her accusations, which would have felt like a punch to the stomach. So Daniel, he has custody of the kids and now Daniel Daniel and the kids move in to a new house that Daniel buys while he is in the process of selling the family home. I think this is when divorce gets really confusing to me because if they own a home together, what do they do with that? Like they have to find a buyer and split it or I don't know how they work that out. I guess that's what all of this in court stuff is for, isn't it? So that was getting a little bit messy. And then there was an incident where Betty showed up at Daniel's new home. When Betty gets into the home, Daniel, he isn't there. And I think Betty was there to get her, get her kids. And when Betty walks into the kitchen, I believe it was, she finds a cake on the kitchen counter. This cake, Betty thinks, oh, that must have been made or been bought by Linda. She doesn't like this cake. She doesn't like the look of this cake. So what uh, What do you think she does with it? Well, she takes the cake. She walks into Daniel's bedroom. She goes over to his bed. And she smashes it face down onto the bed. And then smears it everywhere. Cake everywhere. Cake on the sheets. Cake on the pillows. It's a real cake mess. Which just thinking about that I'm like oh the cleanup is gonna be it's gonna take a while to clean that up uh this is gonna make Betty look very petty and immature in court probably because it is I mean funny yes harmless also yes but come on Betty come on Betty that's something you fantasize about doing to your ex-husband it's not something you actually do smearing cake all over his bed when he's not there (laughs) Um, but then Betty, she goes from harmless cake smearing to very dangerous. July of 1986, Daniel, he somehow convinced a judge to allow him to sell him in Betty's home. And I believe he did this on the grounds that Betty was being unreasonable so that he could continue with the sale maybe without having Betty know about it or having her sign anything or whatever the details may have been, he was able to sell that. And Betty, she learns about this and she's not happy. So what do you think she did now? Betty is thinking, well, I should 
go over to Daniel's new home. I should talk to him about this. He has my kids, so I'm going to make a surprise appearance. Betty, she goes to Daniel's new home again, and she demands to see her children and talk to Daniel. And Daniel, he won't allow it. Whether he's just saying no or he's not even coming to the door, I'm not sure. But it was clear that Betty wasn't going to talk to Daniel about this and she wasn't going to see her kids. And this makes her very, very angry. So Betty, she's like, okay. She gets into her vehicle and she drives her vehicle straight into the front door of Daniel's new home. Plows into it. So dangerous. The kids are inside. It's dangerous for Betty. It's dangerous for Daniel. It's just a dangerous thing to do, to just plow a car into somebody's front door. But yes, that's right. You heard me correctly. That's what she did. And again, that's going to make her look less desirable in court. This is going to make her look unstable. Because of this vehicle through the door incident, Betty is taken away by police. So police are called. It's a whole situation happening. And Betty, she now finds herself in a psychiatric facility for the next three days, like held against her will. Um, And I believe this was Daniel's doing. He was like, no, like psychiatric evaluation she ended up in there somehow I'm not sure how the laws work but again not going to look good in court when it comes to trying to get custody of the children it's because of things like this I'm assuming like I said Betty's not allowed to have full custody of her children so there's a few events um that probably got brought up in court I would imagine Linda, she had also moved in with Daniel. So Linda is living with Daniel now, which is Daniel's 20-something-year-old assistant. They're now, like, officially together. And she moves in with Daniel to this new home, which means Betty is pissed off that Linda is spending time with her children. Linda is in the same house as her children. She doesn't like this. Betty, she has been calling the home, and she's been leaving pretty intense and angry messages for Daniel and these messages get worse and worse when Linda is now on the answering machine message as well I think it was like hey you've reached Daniel and Linda we can't come to the phone right now leave a message at the beep beep and then she's like what the fuck didn't like this but he hated that that was the message that she would get when she would call Daniel and the messages Betty would leave on that answering machine were pretty um pretty graphic she'd be cussing up a storm calling linda a cunt calling daniel an asshole and just being all kinds of out of sorts betty she is she is really really angry this is no secret she doesn't hide her emotions here apparently betty was constantly leaving these vile terrible angry messages it wasn't one or two it was like constant which again, this is not going to look good in court. And all those messages, they're recorded. They can easily be played in court. Daniel had been paying Betty $16,000 a month for support, which I was like, damn, that is so much money. That is so much money to me. I couldn't imagine being paid $16,000 a month. But yes, that's what she was getting. She was getting $16,000 a month from Daniel um, for support. Daniel, he can somehow control this. So I'm not sure if it's 
entirely court appointed again there's a lot of legal things that are kind of in the dark for me I don't you know things I don't really know uh so it's hard to say what's really going on here but he starts taxing her per swear word used which I'm like can I don't I don't know how that would work but he finds Betty $100 per swear word used so she's calling up she's leaving these messages on his answering machine she's swearing a lot and he's counting them and for every time she uses a swear word it's $100 and he also starts fighting her for other things such as showing up when she hasn't arranged a visit and also trespassing and this taxation thing it doesn't deter Betty she keeps doing what she's doing Daniel had even sent her a formal letter to inform her that he was going to start doing this. And she just kept doing it. Just to kind of put this in perspective, Betty's payments she had been receiving were $16,000 a month. And after this tax fines policy comes into play, she was receiving between negative, so minus $1,300 and $5,000 in one month negative meaning debt meaning coming out of the next payment I'm assuming meaning Betty she must be really cursing up a storm and coming around Daniel's home a lot unannounced or trespassing or whatever because what's supposed to be a $16,000 payment is now in the negative one day Betty receives a letter and when she opens it up this letter reads this is pretty crazy it reads eat your heart out bitch and along with this letter are wrinkle cream and weight loss brochures in it it's like a little package Betty she suspects Linda sent this that was never confirmed in anything I saw I actually never saw anything saying that Linda was antagonizing Betty in any way so I'm not really sure what happened there So Betty and Daniel, they are still in the process of getting divorced when Daniel, he proposes to Linda in a very public manner. This was not done quietly. He picks the best restaurant. There's a photo taken of him bending down on on one knee doing this and it makes it into the paper where obviously Betty, she's going to see this. She's going to see it. She's going to hear about it. It's it's very public. And soon after that, that's when Betty and Daniel's divorce is finalized. So he's proposed to Linda while the divorce is still being finalized. And then it gets finalized in in the beginning of 1989. And this is the year it all goes down. This is the year terrible things happen. During this divorce, Betty had to eventually represent herself most likely because over the four years the divorce was being hammered out, Daniel, he was strategically wasting Betty's budget for a lawyer and she had no choice but to represent herself. She was no match for Daniel, who was a successful lawyer, and she got almost nothing. She didn't have custody of the children and it just seemed like Daniel took everything, which was millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of shit, I could imagine. And that left Betty with no home, no custody of her children, and no money. She did still have visitation rights, I believe, 
uh, with her children. So again, I just, I want to point that out. She does have visitation rights. She just doesn't have full custody. The thing that must have really stung for Betty was that Betty, she had supported Daniel while he got double degrees. Remember that when they were living in a dorm room and they had their baby in a, in a drawer, she worked and, and raised the children and it was, it was tough from the beginning, but she stuck with it. She persevered. She made these things happen. She had believed in Daniel. She had loved Daniel. Daniel had loved her at, at one point. And it must have felt like to Betty that as soon as she got a bit older and Daniel got more successful, that maybe she felt like he had dumped her for a much younger woman when things were a bit easier for them. So it's really hard to say what was going on in their marriage. It's possible the relationship was breaking down and both were unhappy for whatever reasons. I mean, that happens. Was Daniel having an affair the right thing to do? Absolutely not. No. Did he have an affair? Yes, he did. I guess the right thing to do at that point would be to separate and try to do it as amicably as possible. Did that happen? No. Were emotions running high? Yes. Was Betty completely out of line with a lot of stuff she did? 100%. And it hurt her as well. One, like none of that wild woman stuff she pulled was going to get her closer to having custody of her children. So what's, what's her next idea? What's happening with Betty? Well, Betty, she buys a gun. In order to learn how to use the gun, she goes to a police shooting range and the police show her how to use it. I'm not sure if Daniel knows about Betty buying a gun, but at his wedding, I think there was talk about uh, Linda maybe saying to Daniel, hey, we should think about getting a restraining order. Like things are getting pretty intense. And I'm not, I don't think they ever did get the restraining order, but at their wedding, at Linda and Daniel's wedding, when they were married, um, Daniel, he wears a bulletproof vest at his wedding and he has people be on the lookout for Betty so he was scared whether or not they know that she has this gun I don't know but he is wearing a bulletproof vest at his wedding and it sounds like they were scared that Betty was going to show up and shoot him Betty she had recently called Daniel's home and she left more messages that basically said you are making me mad and I will kill you I heard this message and she sounds so calm when she says it. And that's when you know it's hit a tipping point. She is so calm when she says this. She's like, Daniel, you're making me really angry and I'm going to kill you. Or she says, like, and I'll kill you. And she says it's so calm. It's it's eerie. It is. It's it's eerie. Betty, she was clinging to the hope she might be able to get custody of her, her children back. It's all she wanted. Daniel, he must have knew this, but the courts, they had given Daniel custody. The divorce, it broke Betty in every way possible. So when he gets his lawyer to send Betty custody papers, which basically says to Betty, hey, Daniel's going to have custody of the children. 
and kind of, I don't know, it must have seemed like to Betty it would have been a really long, drawn-out court process, like a big, long fight to get custody of her children. And she had just gone like four or five years of a huge, long divorce battle. And now it's like, hey, let's battle again. And she just, she couldn't handle it. It was just too much for her. And she really loses her last shred of sanity when she gets that letter. The morning of November 5th, 1989, she drives over to Daniel and Linda's home. It's still dark. Everyone's asleep. And she gains a very silent entry with a key she took from her daughter into Daniel's home. Betty creeps up the stairs into Daniel and Linda's bedroom. So there are a few versions of what transpired, but basically Betty starts shooting and fires off five bullets, hitting both Linda and Daniel. It, uh... It's brutal. Daniel, he's reaching for the phone to call for help. And Betty sees this and she gets the phone away from him. And she rips it out of the wall and she throws it out of the room. Daniel, he survived another 20 minutes before dying. And Linda, she died straight away. Betty flees the scene immediately. And upon fleeing, she calls her daughter to tell her, she says, she shot the son of a bitch or there's like another thing I read that she says she she shot the bitch she doesn't think they're dead though she says that in the call she says I'm, I'm summarizing I don't know exactly what she said but it was something along the lines of I shot the gun in the house and I don't think they're dead and Oprah she actually interviews two out of the four of Betty's children who are, they're now mostly grown up by the time they do this interview in 1992. And they talk about this to Oprah. So I believe Betty called both of her daughters. There was the daughter she called first. And then I think she called the second daughter. So the bodies of Daniel and Linda, they were found the same day of the shooting by friends who went to go see if they were okay because they had heard that Betty may have shot them. And when they went over there, they learned quickly that what they were hearing, it was true. It was correct. Betty, she knows she's as good as caught. So she turns herself in later on that day. So the same day. And police find the gun she used in her purse. She didn't try to hide anything. Betty doesn't exactly admit to the murder though. She claims she went over there to threatened Daniel in order to get the custody of her kids back. And she claimed that if Daniel was not going to budge on the issue, she would then kill herself. But instead, she accidentally fired the gun, killing both 28-year-old Linda and 44-year-old Daniel. Police are like, okay, but, 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 then why did we find this handwritten book in your home that you wrote titled what's a good girl to do and in this book you wrote the only impact I'm going to have on this man is to kill him by the way this is a book that Betty had written about her not so good I guess torturous marriage and divorce to Daniel and Betty she just said she never meant to kill Linda or Daniel. That's what, that's, she's sticking with this. She didn't mean to do it. Then police are like, okay, 
but we have messages from you on his answering machine saying you're going to kill him. And she responds, she didn't mean, she didn't mean it. When she said that, she didn't mean it. She just said it. Linda's first trial, it doesn't go as planned. And it is actually dismissed due to a hung jury. I believe they wanted a lesser sentence. So this jury must have sided more with Betty and they wanted to get a lesser sentence. Something happened there. It was a hung jury. And then there was a second trial. So this second trial, you can find clips on YouTube because the entire thing was recorded and, and televised. You can see Betty testify. You can see her children testify. And the courthouse was packed. I saw footage of this and the lineup was huge. It was a massive lineup. This case, this case was huge. And people all over the world knew about this trial. And everyone was wondering if Betty's this cold-blooded murderer or if she was a woman pushed over the edge, pushed over that brink of sanity by this divorce, by her ex-husband. And that was the conversation being had by a lot of people. Is she a murderer? Was she pushed over the edge? Was she, did, you know, did she have this psychological torture that pushed her to do this? Or, you know, was she just a murderer? So this was a huge topic. This was, everyone was talking about this. So during this trial, Betty's oldest child takes the stand and admits to her mother saying that, one of them had to go and it was one or the other and she had to do it. So that's what Betty's daughter is saying that Betty had told her. And that did not look good for Betty. Betty, she claims that it was an accident and she never meant to kill Daniel and Linda. So why would she have said that one of them had to go and it was one or the other and she had to do it? If she was just having the intention to kill herself then she wouldn't say one of them had to go. She had to do it. She would have said, oh, I meant to kill myself or whatever. You know, it just, it doesn't look good. And Betty was claiming that the home was dark and she didn't mean to kill Daniel and Linda. And she had full intention to kill herself. She says that she doesn't remember even firing the gun five times. She remembers hearing it, but she doesn't remember doing it. She said she went into Daniel and Linda's bedroom. One of them woke up and screamed, call the police. And that scared Betty and she shot the gun. So they were like, call the police. And she was like, ah, da, 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 da. So you can actually watch her kind of recreate this moment on the stand. And the prosecution was able to convince the jury that this is not actually what happened given where the bullets went. It didn't seem like it was random firing. It seemed like they were very much aimed. When all was finalized, the jury, they did find her guilty of two counts of second-degree murder. Betty was sentenced to two consecutive 15-to-life terms, plus two years for the use of a firearm. So many times we hear about concurrent sentences. So if concurrent sentence, if that was applied here, that would mean her two 15-to-life term sentences could be served at the same time and I see that a lot I talk about that a lot on this podcast it seems to happen a lot during sentencing but in this case it didn't they had to be consecutive meaning served one after the other so had it been concurrent Betty would be in prison for 15 to 25 years but because of this it's now like 30 to whatever 30 to life I guess 
And it just makes me wonder, what is the criteria where someone can get concurrent or consecutive sentences? I just have no idea where the courts, where their guideline is for this. I just have no idea. Uh, Betty, this means she'll be in her 70s or 80s if she is ever released, as her sentence will most likely be about 30 plus years as of now, Betty is 75 years old and she is still incarcerated. Um, I believe she would have been in her in her 40s when when all this went down. And Betty, she has no remorse for what she did, even years later. Oprah Winfrey did interview Betty's children, like I said earlier, but she also goes to the prison Betty is being held in and she interviews Betty. She spends the afternoon with her walking around the prison and and chatting with Betty. And Betty really wanted to show Oprah where she's living and everything because at that point in time, her kids had not been able to come visit her. Uh, and there were multiple reasons for that, whether it was too hard to visit their mother or whether it wasn't financially viable because they were all working and it was she wasn't in she wasn't anywhere near them it would have had to been like flights and so we're not really sure why but she's actually was up for parole in 2010 and one of Betty's sons he made it quite clear he didn't think she should be free uh I believe this was in regards to Betty still not showing any signs of remorse for her actions and her parole it was denied one of her daughters said Betty could come live with her and she thinks she should be free, but it didn't go in that direction. The parole board stated that Betty is still bitter and angry and therefore she must remain in prison. In that 1992 Oprah interview with the two of the Broadrick children, it was really compelling because the children who look mostly grown up by this point, I'm not sure how old they were, but they, they look like adults, um... And they talked to Oprah about how they were affected by the divorce, by Betty's actions, and by the murder of their father. Uh, one of Betty's daughters states that her and her siblings, they could have had a, a nice life. You know, they could have had a, a privileged life. And she believes her mother cheated them out of that. And the fact her mother hasn't shown any remorse about about that is is really upsetting to her. And it's so sad for the children because they not only lost their father in a horrific way but they also lost their mother because Betty was sent to prison for what she had done the children were left with no parents and this was really hard on them you could imagine how how hard that would be I also have a lot of sympathy as well and well wishes for Linda's family this would have been undoubtedly absolutely heartbreaking for them to go through as well and in a, everything that I was watching it didn't really mention too much about Linda just that Linda and Daniel had you know got together when he was still married to Betty and basically everything I told you was all I could really find find out about Linda so I do have a lot of sympathy for her family family as well um this case it was massive it was turned into multiple movies and documentaries there's even a Netflix series and at least four books written about it. One of these books was written by Betty's daughter. And this will be the only time I'll say one of Betty's children's name. And it's to tell you about her book. And the title of the book that she wrote is Betty Broderick, My Mom, The Kim Broderick Story. 
And that was published in 2014. And I am for sure going to be checking out that book and, and giving that a read. Uh, in 1992, Op- in the Oprah interview, Oprah asked the two Broderick children about one of the movies and how it made them feel watching their situation be turned into a film. And Betty's daughter said, albeit the timeline and events were accurate, the emotions didn't come across as how it actually was. So I found that quite um, compelling as well. I found a recent article from 2021 and it breaks down how each of the four children feel about the possible release of their mother and it really seems to be split feelings which in Kim Broderick's book that she writes I think it really goes into from from what I read it really goes into the relationships and kind of the the what everybody's thinking like what the siblings are thinking and how maybe they don't really agree with each other when it comes to what happened. Um, So in this article, it breaks down how each of the four children feel about the possible release of their mother, and it seems to be split feelings. But it is clear they all love their mother still. They visit Betty at least three times a year. They visit her on her birthday, on Mother's Day, and at least once during the summer. So at least three times a year. I also read that Betty asked them, her children not to visit her on Christmas because Betty doesn't want their Christmas memories involving prison, which I thought that was incredibly thoughtful of Betty. You know, she's still thinking about the well-being of her children. She loves her children. It it cannot be easy visiting your elderly mother in prison. That must be really hard for them. Betty's next parole hearing, I believe, is in uh, 2032, so it is still quite a ways away. I hope wherever the Broderick children are now and whatever they are doing, they are living full happy lives. And I I wish them all the best in life. What they went through was absolutely tragic. And it's just not, it's, it's not something anyone could ever truly get over or forget. You know, that's, all, it's always going to be with them. And it's, it's just really tragic. That does conclude this week's episode. Uh, follow the podcast at hell no underscore true crime podcast on Instagram and TikTok if you want to hear a brief overview of each week's case. Please don't forget to give a five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever that is available to do so. If you would like to leave a comment or a review, that is always appreciated. That concludes this week's episode and see you next week. Ooh.